0: So what's your favorite number? For many one Buddhists, four is a very special number. Why? We've got the fourfold grace, the four essentials, the four great principles, the four articles to develop. But it's also the month of April, the great enlightenment day of founding Master San the founder of One Buddhism, and it's also the birthday of One Buddhism. One Buddhism was not founded as a religious order. One Buddhism originated from the zeal of an enlightened human being who wanted to share what he had gained certainty about. He looked out into the world and he said, I can't leave the world as it is. So his vow was to guide all sentient beings from the bitter seas of suffering to a vast and immeasurable paradise here on earth. And to do so he created teachings to pass on this light of wisdom. So Soche-san did not begin with the conviction that he needed to establish a religion called One Buddhism. That naturally happened as, tap, as temples started to form, you know, institutions grew. A year before his passing, he stayed up late into the night and he started editing the manuscript, which we now know as our principal book of One Buddhism. And he would edit. So he erased and he's contemplated. He said, how can I make these teachings practical, logical, simple, applicable? So he spent many nights doing that. Because he knew that once people are born into this world, every person without exception dislikes suffering and likes happiness. However, many lack a clear method to live a happy life especially during this contemporary time. So he provided a teaching that would serve as a map for living a better life. And he wasn't, he wasn't a scholar, but if you read our, our principal book, you'll notice that it's organized almost like a dissertation. There's an introduction that explains why we, do, we have faith and we practice. Then it elucidates the truth or the pr- main principle and then shows the method of practice. And finally, even a way to assess where am I on my spiritual path? So Master Sotisana said, now what we need to learn and what we need to teach is the way and the virtue of the Buddha. You must first study the main principle of the Buddha Dharma and practice eagerly to awaken to its truth. And then he adds, the Buddha Dharma of the future will not be the Buddha Dharma of the past. It has to be practiced by everyone, whether one has left the household or not. And there will be no distinction between our work and our practice. So he's making a very essential point here. Not only is he saying, awaken to the truth, but apply it. Apply the truth in your life. And he wanted all of us to become the living Buddhas. So, what does a living, enlightened, living Buddha look like? Apparently, nothing special. And you see this in the first chapter of the Diamond Sutra. Thus have I heard at one time the Buddha was staying in Jeddah Grove in the city of Srivasti. Early in the morning, when the mealtime came, the Buddha put on his robe, and holding his bowl, entered the great city of Shravasti where he begged for food. Having finished begging from door to door, he came back to his own seat in the garden and took his meal. And with this was done, he put away his robe and bowl, washed his feet, spread his seat, sat down, mindfully fixing his attention in front of him. So you can imagine how confused the translators were, probably, when they tried to translate this Buddhist sutra into Western language. They probably thought to themselves, what's with all this unnecessary repetition? What, who cares if he put down his, ro- you know, his bowl and put on his robe? What is the point of it all? But they missed the point. What Buddha's disciple, Ananda, is saying is that Buddha pays attention to small things as much as to big things. When he takes his bowl, he is respectful to the bowl. When he puts on his robe, he does so mindfully, absolutely alert, not mechanical. So think this morning when you put on your clothes. For me, it was very mechanical. So every single action he does throughout the day is done with this non-conceptual awareness. And these minor details are worth relating because they bring the quality of Buddhahood. And to watch a Buddha is a blessing. Each moment is this radiant moment of awareness, which reminds me of a story. So as a child, I soaked in a lot of images. I'm an image person, right? So images, places, people. This was especially the case when I visited Korea. So my family had the fortunate opportunity to visit Korea during the summer months, and it was the only time my parents could participate in a retreat. So for my sister and I, it was torture. We did not like it at all. Because we would spend these summer months in in humidity in the countryside, huge mosquitoes, no air conditioning. And we'd share this, our whole family would stay in this one room with just this one swiveling fan. And I'd be like, why? Why, Appa, why, Dad? You know, why are you doing this to us? Because all my other friends during the summer months, they'd be going to Disney World, you know? And here we were in rural Korea, waking up at this ridiculous time of day, eating from these tin trays. And so I would ask him this, and my dad wouldn't say anything, he has like the stare, right? It's just like, be quiet, right? So he doesn't have to say anything. So I closed my mouth, but my eyes and my ears were open. The only times I opened my mouth was when they fed me the watermelon and the choco pie, right? So the question always lingered, why? And for my dad, it was to spend time with his teacher to learn and to re-energize himself before heading back to Toronto, to a very stressful workplace. He needed this retreat as a recharge for his battery because he could feel it was being depleted. So I carefully watched his teacher, who everyone knew was this living Buddha, and what was it about him, that was the question, what was it about him that made people hop on a plane? to visit him, to want to learn from him. When I looked at him, he just looked like a grandfather, nothing special. But there was something about him that I found fascinating. Wherever he went, this whole group would always follow, and happiness followed. There was always laughter, always people smiling. People who surrounded him seemed to feel at peace, they were secure, safe and most importantly, themselves. And why did I know this? Because when I was around him too, I felt that, I felt safe, I felt at peace. So I I would like to think that when you're in the presence of someone like that, that you feel like you're home, that you belong. And I think this is a genuine gift of compassion. When you feel that energy embracing you, allowing you to be you. So I can describe to you how I felt and what I saw. I can't describe to you what his world looked like. It's on another level, but it's something beautiful to witness and to see. What is hopeful is that Master Sutta-san says with complete confidence, you can attain Buddhahood. In fact, he said, here's the map. Please take it, use it, inquire into it and test it out. Because we, we here born into this human body, not only in the human body, but coming into contact with the Buddha Dharma is a gift. So it's, he's almost saying don't waste a moment, but don't rush either, right? Okay? It's like little drops of water make the ocean, little grains of sand make the land, little by little. So the entirety of this One Buddhist Dharma is to help us wake up, which is not the opposite of being asleep. It's the opposite of being unaware. Everything that we see is only how it is brought into us through our senses, and then we interpret it, right? By our consciousness. And modern physics tells us that everything that appears to be solid is actually mostly space. And yet to us, things are very solid. Not only objects, but our thoughts. When we have a thought or an an idea, we absolutely believe it. The same is true of our emotions. How something is and how it appears to us are two different things. So when we talk about right enlightenment, it's not about entering into another realm. In the the case of Master Sotasana, upon enlightenment, it meant seeing the world clearly, seeing things as they truly are. So before enlightenment, when Sotisant looked at nature, it was probably just nature. But after enlightenment, he saw the principle of nature. He started to see the grace we receive from nature. And most importantly, showing us eight paths of how to show gratitude to Mother Nature. So making the decision to walk this path even scheduling time for this retreat, coming to today's Sunday Dharma service shows that we are making an effort. And we should definitely have hope because there is this one line in the Dharma words of Irwan Sang that says, Irwan is the nature of all the Buddhas, enlightened masters, ordinary humans and sentient beings. Which means my original nature, the nature of all Buddhas and sages, are the same. We have the same spiritual hometown. So, so one said, realize that originally sentient beings and Buddhas are non-dual. So, if a Buddha is deluded, they are a sentient being. If a sentient being awakens, they are a Buddha. So, the essence of the One Buddhist Path is this mind training. And I know when you hear the word training, it's like. Ah! But training means repetition. Because because the mind is the only thing we have. Without it, we can't experience anything, either internally or externally. And the essential problem in our lives is our own mind. So now I understand why my father saved up money to attend retreats in the rural areas of Korea. He realized that his problems stemmed from his own responses to life. He learned that if he changed everything would change. He knew that he would still encounter situations out of his control but how he responded to those situations was now in his hands and he needed this badly because his decisions impacted not only himself but also the future of his children. Blaming his upbringing or parents for the problems in his life were no longer working. And I thank him for training his mind because it changed my life. So how much attention are we giving our minds? Sotisan once said, most people don't even consider the minds chaos to be real chaos. So I'm looking at all your beautiful faces right now and I'm wondering if I placed a megaphone on your head what would I hear? (laughs) Every day do you brush your teeth? Do you drink water? Do you take a shower? This is great you're taking care of your physical body. Do you cleanse your mind? So, could you imagine if this meditation hall was full of garbage and junk and unnecessary things and it was like tacky wallpaper and it was crammed? Would you want to meditate here? As long as our minds are untrained, that is exactly where we are living. We can take our bodies and we can leave here, but guess what? Your mind follows you. So the first thing we need to do is wash the mind, clean it. Not once or just twice, but if possible, in our waking moments. So you come here, you sit, you listen to the Dharma talk, you're already receiving the many gifts of the practice, and you're taking the steps to look inwards. However, coming together once a week, attending these retreats is not enough. The one Buddhist path is a path of transformation, it's a mind revolution. And this mind revolution is possible because we integrate our practice in everyday life situations. And these, you know, the whole idea of this retreat is to prepare you for the real retreat afterwards. When you go home, when you go to work, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to school, that's the real training ground. Here, the conditions are great. Right? Just wait till you go back home. So we need a daily retreat. And fortunately, we have a very detailed daily training method that all practitioners can do. And you never leave practice for even a moment. And you will learn more about this as you continue to gather with your Dharma friends and teachers. Read the One Buddhist scriptures. It's all in there you will gain the tools to create mind muscles. To give the mind strength and power. And with this practice and during this retreat, you experienced the formal practice of seated meditation. You experienced giving the mind real rest by stopping the thinking. And you started the experiencing. And we had a a moment like that yesterday, before evening meditation, we were asked to take a moment to observe the sky. And Buddhist teachers will tell us that, that the nature of the mind is like that vast sky. That the nature of our mind is very clear, it's luminous, it stretch, stretches in all directions. And you probably notice the clouds if you're observing. And those clouds are like our thoughts and our feelings. But many times we identify with those transitory clouds and not realizing that there's that sky that's always there, that's very vast and clear. So over time with this practice, we develop a mind which is totally present and spacious. It's a presence that's not tight or narrow. Right? Of course, there are times when we need that type of one-pointed attention. If you are like, flying an airplane or you're doing surgery, you need that type of concentration. However, it's important to know how to develop the spacious mind, a mind which is open, completely aware and attentive. And if we keep the mind too tight, it gets stressed. It starts to rebel. And you may have seen this before, people trying hard to be perfect, right? They don't wanna lose anything, and they wanna keep their minds a certain way, but what ends up happening is that it leads to a certain nervousness. Instead, what we should try to do is keep the mind spacious, spacious, but it's not half asleep, it's not loose. It's very poised, so that whatever is going on, we know. We don't get lost in memories, don't get lost in judgments, we are simply with what is happening in the moment. So Sutta-san says, keep your practice natural, and he uses a very good example of a babysitter who lets the infant come and go, play to its heart's content, and makes its body and mind livelier, restraining the infant only when it wanders towards something dangerous. Because if you imagine, if the babysitter you know, holds the baby tightly with the, and holds the baby all day like that, the baby suffers. So when we do this mind training with sincerity, then we start to get the glimpse of the nature of the mind and we touch who we truly are. And we start to realize, just like how we saw in the sky, that we're all very much interconnected. There's not this sky, that sky, is just all sky. So an old Hasidic rabbi once asked his pupils how they could tell exactly when the night had ended and the day begun. Is it when you can see an animal in the distance and tell whether it is a sheep or a dog? One student proposed. No, answered the rabbi. Is it when you can clearly see the lines on your own palm? Answered another, asked. Is it when you can look at a tree in the distance and tell if it is a fig or a pear tree? No, answered the rabbi each time. Then what is it? The pupils demanded. It is when you can look on the face of any man or woman and see that they are your sister or brother. Until then, it is still night. So may April be the month of the sun rising in the sky, lighting up the world, a month for for profound transformation. Let us cultivate a kindness, just realizing that every being in front of us also experiences suffering in its many manifestations, and like ourselves, need a little kindness. And most of all, remember that One Buddhism started with the spiritual vow of one person, and that one person's spiritual experience would transform not just his own life, but also the lives of many others. And he provided us with the necessary tools to freedom. They are all yours. Now we can use them. Thank you.